Hello and welcome to What a Scream, the horror movie podcast where I, your host, Egrain, chats with a special guest every episode about horror films, obviously. Um, but in particular, we chat about a certain subject or topic that I've previously randomly chosen, and then we each choose a film to discuss. Um, so this week is all about telephones, as random as it is. Uh, last week was the internet, this week is telephones. Um, so my guest this week is Michaela Daniels, and together we are going to be talking about the the classic When a Stranger Calls from 1979, directed by Fred Walton and starring Carol Kane, of course, um, which was a bit of a surprise one for me. I think it was my first watch and it wasn't what I was expecting, but sure, look, we'll get into that in the conversation. And our second film that we will be discussing to do with telephones is One Missed Call from the master that is Takashi Miike. Uh, this is from 2003. So enjoy this uh, chat about telephones in horror. So I would like to welcome to the podcast for the very first time Michaela Daniels. How are you Michaela? I'm doing great. Good good good. Thank you so much for for coming on. Yeah I'm, I'm really excited. I love talking about horror films so this is perfect. Great. Uh, so would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, um, I'm a screenwriter, a filmmaker. I am a host for a show on a PBS station called Saturday Night Cinema, and we introduce television show or movies, and they're generally classic movies. So we get a lot of the 50s and the 60s, though we do get some that are a little more current within the 2000s, but that's one of my jobs. And other than that, I direct film, I write films and, and theater and just all the art stuff. Well, so you're a really creative person then? Yes, I would hope so. <laughs> um, and how did you get into horror? And do you remember the first horror film you ever saw? Yeah, so um, kind of a sad story, but uh, basically I, I went through some trauma as a child, as a very young mm -hmm. child, and I did what I, I think some other people do and found comfort in the horror genre. Mm -hmm. um, so I, even at like, you know, seven or eight years old, um, I think I saw it was on a black and white television and this was back in the early eighties. And I think it was the blob, the original mm -hmm. blob. And I also saw the fly and some of those really classic films, like in the middle of the night on this television. Yeah. And I really just kind of connected to it. It was a way to, I think, process my trauma in a safe way because it allowed me to experience fear in a way that I knew I'd be safe. Mm -hmm. and, and it's just been sort of this lifelong thing since then where I am just really uh, attracted to the genre, not just in films, but in literature and, and art. And, and I think it's there's something very beautiful about death that we can explore as humans. And, and that's really what I love to do. Yeah, it's so funny how like a lot of horror fans experience some form of trauma and they really find comfort in the genre, whereas a lot of people who wouldn't be fans of horror are like, it's a terrible genre, it's, you know, so traumatic and horrible. And we're like, yeah, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's because it's, you know, it's, it maybe it's, it's fake monsters, you know, like if we've experienced real monsters in real life, there's just something weirdly comforting about fake monsters. Yeah especially when often in films, 
they, you know, there is some sort of karma to that, right? Um, yeah. A lot of times the bad guy loses in the end. So it's a way to sort of replay our trauma, but as a winner. Yeah. Um, one of my friends, she's a psychologist and she was like, you know, horror is kind of a way for you to experience kind of almost a therapy and a way to kind of like be in a situation that in normal everyday life you wouldn't be able to. So you'd be able to like, you know, experience extreme anger and hatred towards people. And you can kind of watch someone be cut up and be like, oh, I feel better now, uh, which is like really twisted. But so true. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Do you remember what the first horror film was apart from The Blob? Do you remember like the first full on? The first full on horror film that I, I really liked and watched. I, again, I was like pretty young. Um, let me see. I, I have IMDb because I'm a film person. Um, so it's always so it was. House of Wax. No, no, okay. it was Waxworks. It was the 1988 right. Waxworks. And I still, right. there was a scene where they were eating people. It, it was, mm -hmm. um, oh, I can't remember, steak tartare, but it was humans. And okay. like that scene imprinted on me. And uh, like, I just thought about that particular scene for a very long time. It was just, it yeah. was so weird. Um, but I recently watched it not too long ago again. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, just the changes in sort of special effects and, and makeup and stuff, it, you know, it's huge from back then. But, yeah. you know, I, I still like it. I, I love all the horror films, even even the bad ones, you know, like <laughs> the really cheap, what were they thinking, bad ones, because yeah. there's still some value in that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's kind of touch on our topic for the episode, which is telephones as random as this is um what did you think when I broached you with this subject actually you know there's a lot of use of telephones in horror genre um you know I think scream for like a lot of you know modern audiences like scream sort of the first one you think of but it's it's used a lot um back into classic films so I was like oh wow how am I going to narrow this down really because <laughs> there's just so many films that use the telephone as basically yeah. a, a mode of fear yeah and why do you think it is used as a mode of fear like what makes it so effective well for me personally I have telephone anxiety so I'm one of those people I hate making phone calls do not call me unless somebody's dying like text yeah. me I'm fine with like video chatting because I yeah. can see another person's body language so the yeah. problem with phones is that you're hearing words and you're sometimes understanding the tone, but I think because we can't see the other person, we're missing information. And our brains yeah. don't like that because we're not seeing the body language and the facial expressions. And I think mm -hmm. there's just something very frightening about sort of like this dissonance between what we're hearing and, and having no visual um, information mm -hmm. that really um, kind of scares us because we get information, just not enough information. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's can be anonymous. I mean, less so now, um, you know, with cell phones and caller ID and everything. But back in the day, like you didn't know who was calling you. You know, it could be anybody from anywhere. We didn't have caller ID. You know, you just pick up the phone and like you didn't know who's going to be on the other end. So there was always that that sort of questioning it like who's calling you. It, it, it was this anonymous voice on the phone, which kind of speaks to um, at least the film that I chose, 
you know, and it plays into that. And that, and that was made back in the day before caller ID as well. So I, I don't know if things have changed a little bit with that. Um, but yeah. That's fascinating. Cause like, I like you, I hate talking on the phone, hate it. And then you find yourself as an adult and, and with kids as well. And you find yourself, you have to talk, you have to bring doctors, mm-hmm. schools, whatever. And I never really understood it. I just thought, cause I'm like, I'm quite, I can be quite an antisocial person. So I was like, maybe it's just me, but that makes so much sense because it kind of links in. I don't like clowns. Like I like horror movie clowns. I don't like normal people clowns right. because I can't see their face. Yeah. And that makes sense for me on the telephone. I'm perfectly fine over video call. But even when I'm on the phone to my dad, I'm like, I don't like this. I hate talking on the phone. I like send a letter. I'd prefer a letter. <laughs> you know, send me an email. Like, <laughs> I actually, I went to visit my parents not too long ago. My dad was giving me so much, um, so much just like, why don't you ever call me? And I was like, look, dad, like I will answer the phone if you call me. Like yeah. it's my dad. It shows up as dad. I said, but honestly, I never think to call anybody. It's, yeah. it's this anxiety thing. Like if you want to talk to me, you can text me and I'll call you. But yeah. like, I don't know, there's just all these anxieties surrounding with it. And, um, and, and my dad's almost 80. So of course he, he can't <laughs> understand like, like, why are you afraid of the telephone? And I'm like, there's just yeah. lots of stuff. It's scary. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it like, it, it's kind of an, when you use it in horror films, it's kind of another form of a mask. Like we see a lot of like mask serial killers, but yeah. the telephone is almost a mask for these kind of antagonists, um, which you wouldn't think of because it's just an everyday object. But Right. I mean, yeah. And if you look again at Scream, you know, and, and sort of in today's world, like we have voice changing technology, right? That's mm-hmm. really cheap and, and really available to the masses. So any one of us can go get this technology and we can completely change our voice and, and we could be this killer, right? Like any yeah. one of us, this mysterious killer and nobody would know what our actual voice sounds like. Exactly. Um, so let's start with um, your choice of film. Would you like to introduce it and give us a synopsis, please? Yes. So it is the 1979 When a Stranger Calls, and um, that started starred Carol Kane, and she's fantastic and is a very young uh, teenage sort of Carol Kane. And, and basically it was a psychopathic killer terrorizes a babysitter, and then she um, then returns seven years to terrorize her again so it's it's not just like when she's young as a babysitter it kind of goes on and and honestly this came out I think a year after the original Halloween which was also sort of this babysitter type of situation so we had a lot of uh, late 70s and early 80s horror movies sort of centering on the babysitter Um, but they use you know the phone then to add the horror into this film versus Halloween you know used a killer yeah it's so like okay so this was my first watch of this um I'd always meant to watch it I'd always seen it on like you know scariest moments in horror kind of programs it was recently on the the shutter one that came out there a while ago and it really surprised me that the first 20 minutes is exactly the first 20 minutes I I thought that I had seen the remake funnily enough I'd seen the remake not the original uh, the remake is the whole 20 minutes in a feature length version. Whereas the original, the scariest bit happens in the first 20 minutes and you really expect that to be the whole movie and it's not. Yeah. It's, it actually almost in a way feels like two separate films. 
you know, you have the beginning and then everything else. Um, Honestly, as a filmmaker, I don't know what the better choice is because I've also seen the remake. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think if I would have made the film today, I probably would have done what the remake did. And it's like, that's the film, right? But I don't know. I mean, this was 1979. So the way we were telling stories was a little bit different, um, even the genre itself. So, yeah, I, I don't know how I feel about it. this you know sort of original thing I feel like um as a screenwriter I I don't know that I would have done this sort of follow-up this you know seven years later yeah does it work I think it works for the film given the context of the time and stuff but I think when we go back to sort of this newer remake I think it was appropriate what they did for our audiences today right because we're we're like two very different audiences and, and sort of times. And, you know, you always have to look at society um, and, and the time that a film was made to really understand the sort of context and, and why filmmakers did certain things. I like the, I like Carol Kane as an actress mm. and, and I, I think her performance is fantastic in this film. You know, it, it is a classic horror genre film. So if I was teaching, a, uh, a college class on horror genre films, I would include it uh, just mm-hmm. because of, of what it did. And, and, you know, really sort of in a way it started sort of this phone trope, you know, there were other movies, you know, earlier movies that used telephones, but mm-hmm. I, I see just a, a lot of, you know, again, scream definitely influenced by that film. So it did influence a lot of filmmakers, you know, and it continues to do so. But uh, I just, I think the writing or the pacing of the newer film is better, personally. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so the opening 20 minutes, you know, we've got this babysitter and she keeps getting these phone calls that are like, have you checked on the children? When are you going to check on the children? And she doesn't do it the first time, which is kind of weird because surely your first (laughs) action would be like, oh shit, I better go check on the children. Um, And they get increasingly menacing. And this is where we kind of get the development of the plot twist, which is she calls the police and they trace the phone and they're like, ring her back and calls coming from within the house. Which Um, is the line that people use today. And most people do not know it came from this film the yeah. calls were coming from inside the house you know yeah and it's it's from it is from a um well apparently it was based on a short film from 1977 which in turn is based on uh, an urban legend you know ghost story that you'd kind of tell as a kid um but it's so weird that we get these plot twists in the first one because we're so used to plot twists being that's the end yes yes and um we don't you know, we don't write a lot like that anymore. I mean, you think about Psycho too, right? I mean, you have two very different, again, it kind of has that feel of two very different films because we have this, you know, woman, you know, she's leaving, she's got all this money and we're like, oh, this is like a heist or, you know, crime film. And then she's like murdered and she was our main character, you know, gets murdered in the shower. So I feel like there was, I don't know, there, there was just something different about the way horror genre scripts used to be written. Um, versus how we do it now yeah um the only downfall is so you've got all that the opening you're like oh my god and then we're kind of introduced to this police detective and also the murderer at the same time so he's gone on the lam and he's run away and it's so strange that we've got this 
change of perspective. We've gone from Carol Kane's perspective um, and then onto this detective and murderer. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. I think because I'm so into like Jallo, which obviously the uh, the 70s slashers were very influenced by. So in Jallo, the mis- you know, you work up to the mystery, whereas we know who the killer is and we see him go through these towns and we see the detective who's now a private investigator go after him. And I felt like it created a bit of a lull in the story. I was a little bit like, oh, bored. <laughs> yeah, so I, I really think, again, that sort of goes back to the way that it used to be paced. And yeah. as current audiences, like we have been trained to want really quick pacing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and part of that comes from um, the internet, right? So now we have short form videos all the time. We have 30 second videos, you know, one minute videos that we're consuming multiple times a day. And so we've almost trained ourselves to need those like really fast hit plot points, those really big turns or like this really faster pacing. Mm -hmm. And that just didn't used to be a thing back then. Um, And I'm trying to think of when, you know, we can kind of look at the where it changed, but I think it was probably the early 2000s is when we Mm -hmm. really kind of started ramping up pacing. Um, And also in television, too, there, you know, there's shows like uh, Preacher. Now, the I don't know if you've seen the series, but the first like the opening scene for the pilot of Preacher, I mean, it is just hardcore, just throwing things at you. And it's fantastic. Like you're you're engrossed because there's just so much happening and they're introducing this sort of like sci-fi fantasy world, but it's all done very, very quickly and mm-hmm. at a pace that um, older films just don't have. So I think, you know, part of it is on us as, as filmmakers and screenwriters, because we continue to write this way, we continue to make films like this. But part of it is just because that's what our audience is now looking for. And so production companies, studios, producers, they look for that in a script, they look for these really fast paced scripts. And I don't think if somebody came with that script right now to a studio, they'd be like, no, like these first 20 minutes, they're great. Uh, but then the rest of this, it, it's too slow. You're going to lose your audience. Um, so it, it would be interesting had you seen it like years and years ago, right? Because I, mm-hmm. I watched it in the early 80s when we were still pacing things quite a bit slower. Um, and I actually probably should rewatch the film and see how I feel about it now. Yeah. I imagine I might have a very different feeling on the pacing, even Mm -hmm. though, you know, the first like five times that I watched it, I was like, "Eh," you know, it does, it gets a little slow. It gets a little slow in the back half. And, you know, but I was still used to that a little bit. And now I'm, I'm not used to that. Even in my writing, things happen just so fast and and it's just like really fast paced. So I, I don't know. It's interesting watching some of these older horror genre films that have the slower pacing and be like man this film did great like i mean it's you know it's a classic like people talk about it but i i guarantee you if it came out today the way it is Mm -hmm. nobody would have bought it it would have never been made uh you know nobody would watch it (laughs) um so concerning the middle part what do you think of this whole so we're showing this killer, you know, he's an English guy. There's a lot of emphasis on the fact that he's English, by the way. It's like <laughs> Bond villain central. Um, 
and he goes to this town and he tries almost like he tries to hit on this woman and the guy beats him up for it but then she feels bad for him and lets him into her home even though she's probably like i really don't want to let you in but i'm being nice because it's the 70s and i'm a woman um what do you think about that perspective of the killer? Do you think it's a sympathetic one or do you perhaps with the modern eyes, you're like, oh, this is creepy? Well, I mean, it's it's definitely creepy. I, I would imagine that even at that time, um, you know, as women, as femme presenting people, we are trained socially to be polite, especially mm-hmm. to men, um, especially because we know that if we're not polite to men, bad things can happen to us. And, and you know, that's a very real thing. And so I think that, moment really kind of illustrates like yeah we can sit here as an audience and be like girl like you don't you don't let like get away from the dude like why why are you being nice to him like he's gonna murder you right mm-hmm. and, and we're screaming that at, at our, our screens but there's that knowledge of if we were really in that situation we might have done the same thing mm-hmm. just because of how we've been you know kind of trained socially and so for me as a, as a writer and filmmaker, I would hope that it was intentional and it, it is really mm-hmm. trying to show, you know, this very real thing that goes on that maybe most people don't think about, right? Like yeah. it's even an unconscious thing for us as women a lot of times. Like we're really nice. Mm-hmm. I was hit on the other day, you know, down at the bus station, which like don't hit on people at the bus station. But, <laughs> you know, and this guy, he's like, oh yeah, you know, you're, I'd like to take you out for coffee and all this other stuff. And, and I was like, yeah, no, but like you, I was still polite to him. Like, why am I entertaining this person? I don't know. You know, I, I, I don't know this person, you know, but we're still like inside of our head. We're like, you got to be polite. You got to be polite. Mm-hmm. And and we can have very real effects of, you know, being murdered. So, yeah. you know, that that was just kind of a moment in that film that I think speaks to me as a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, just knowing that like we think we would do something different but given the situation we might not in the actual yeah. situation yeah and also just something I picked up on I just want to know your points of view <clears throat> there is a very obvious class difference in Carol Kane's character both as a teenager and as a woman in the third act as we see and this woman who ends up getting um, killed by this guy do you think that that was a commentary on how different class of women are treated when it comes to uh, murderers and crime and violence? Oh, absolutely. I mean, even now, I mean, you know, I'm here in the U.S. and we, and we look at statistics and, you know, uh, women who work in sex work, um, they have high amount of crimes, you know, committed against them. But the police don't really care. They're considered less than, right? Mm-hmm. Just because they engage in this activity. And we still have a lot of class differences. And you're right. I mean, women are treated differently depending on their class, right? You have very rich, very well-educated women moving in certain circles that are looked as more of like a diamond as a prize, right? Like mm-hmm. she's, she's this beautiful flower, this diamond. And then you have lower class, working class women, sex workers, you know, it just kind of goes down this line of our, our value as a woman depends on a, what class circles we run in and B, who are the men around us? Yeah. You know, who are the men that we're socializing with? So, you know, yes, I, and I, and that's a very common theme for filmmakers, you know, is to kind of look at these sort of class differences. I mean, it's easy. It's, 
all around us, right? You know, even today, yeah. you can look outside your door and you will see class differences. Mm-hmm. So I, I did find it interesting that the way that they did that, but it's very real. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. the same thing we're experiencing now. And, and you know, that was, again, 1979. Like, yeah. not much has changed for women. Yeah. Like, everyone likes to say, like, oh, you know, all these things have changed. And I'm like, yeah, but, like, you can watch these movies and the points that they're making from, like, 40, 50 years ago. Those points are still valid today. Yeah. Um, So we get on to the third part, which is where, seven years later, Carol Kane has grown up. She's got kids of her own. She's got a husband. And they've gone out on a little date to a restaurant. And somehow the guy knows where she is yeah. and uh, and phones them at the restaurant and says the infamous line have you checked on the children um at which point she melts down obviously um what did you think of this third act i mean i didn't like it yeah. it felt very tropey to me and again, I don't know if that's because I'm living in this time right now and, and, and I've yeah. seen so much since then, mm. but it just, it felt anticlimactic as well. Like I know it was supposed to be like this big moment and, and like this scare and, and I guess it would be scary in a way, especially as a parent, you know, having kids, mm. like if, you know, you were stalked and menaced by this horrific psychopath, you know, when you were younger, now you're an adult, you have mm. kids. I, I would imagine it probably would be terrifying. I just, the way it, it played out in context with this, you know, the way the whole film was structure, structured, it just, it felt like a letdown in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like I really, I wanted a more violent sort of third act, I guess, <laughs> um, yeah. or at least a more terrifying third act. And, mm-hmm. and we didn't get it. And I, I know like the middle of a film, it always kind of lulls a little bit. And and yeah. part of that is when we're writing, man, that second act, it's like twice as long as the other two acts. So it's yeah. exhausting. We get a little lost sometimes as writers in it. But like your first act should be really strong, which it is in this film. And then your third act has to be really strong because that's what yeah. your audience is going to leave with, right? Yeah. You know, um, it doesn't it doesn't matter how good your opening is, is if at the end, everybody walks away unsatisfied. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me, I found this ending unsatisfying. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I probably would not have walked out, like, had I seen it in the theater when it came out mm-hmm. as an adult, right? I probably would not have been satisfied with that ending. But again, yeah. is that, like, a product of the time that we're in? Mm-hmm. Or is it just a, a really unsatisfying ending no matter when you watched it? Yeah. I mean... I'm going to compare it to another 70s slash that actually uses telephones as well. I just didn't pick it because I've already done it for an episode. But Black Christmas. Mm, yeah. um, I love Black Christmas. It is my favorite slasher. And it just, it has that really good opening where we're introduced to the characters and introduced to a situation that they've been in for a while. And then we've got that investigative detective story in between. And then we have the final act where all shit breaks loose and there's unicorns killing people um and I just feel like that's what I kind of wanted when a stranger calls to be you just need that like balls to the wall craziness at the end yeah um it just felt like such like because I keep hopping up but the first 20 minutes are so good even the way it's shot the cinematography because we don't know he's in the house yet you know there's shots coming in from outside so we think he's outside he's stalking her from outside and I just feel that there was none of that 
art, that cinema, mm -hmm. like cinematography art that was employed in the first act done in the third act. And it just felt like they kind of just lost the will to live as the yeah. movie went on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and that's why I keep saying, going back to like, it feels like two different films. And, you know, I actually haven't like researched this film in the way that I, I have researched other films, but it would be interesting to know, like, what changed? Did something change on set? Yeah. The script always like this. Because um, I know sometimes studios and producers, they get involved and they change the script mm -hmm. or they change yeah. the ending after the director shot it. And and it's really sort of out of the hands of the people who actually made it. Um, yeah. So I part of me wonders, was that the situation here? Um, because, yeah, it just, that third act sucks, you know? Yeah. And, and it shouldn't suck. Like you can let the middle yeah. suck if your beginning is good and your end is good. Like the middle can, can suck. It's fine. Whatever. But uh, yeah, it just, man, it, it was a disappointing ending. Yeah. So would you recommend When a Stranger Calls to horror fans? I would just to, on a sort of academic level, um, a, yeah. a sort of teacher level, I would just to understand, you know, I think it's important to understand sort of how horror films used to be um, yeah. so that we can better make films now. But for like a general audience or reviewer, you're probably not going to like it. Um, you'll probably yeah. like the, I think it was the 2003 was the remake. Yeah. Something like that. You'd probably like that better. Um, so yeah. Only on an academic standpoint would I recommend it. Yeah, I'd recommend like the first 20 minutes. So <laughs> I'd be like, watch the first 20 minutes. <laughs> right, then you um, it, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. I'm always like, learn your history, learn your horror history, because mm -hmm. I think it's really important to see how it has influenced. Like you said, it did influence uh, Scream. Like Kevin Williams has outwardly been like, yeah, this influenced me for the Casey scene at the very beginning mm -hmm. of Scream. So yeah. I do think it holds some sort of legacy to yeah. a certain extent. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think if, if you like those, you know, if you like Scream and you, you want to see, you know, where did this influence come from? You know, yeah. I'm that type of person. So I will watch yeah. horror films that I don't like specifically yeah. just to kind of analyze it and be like, okay, what did this influence? Because I just find yeah. it fascinating as filmmakers, we're always influenced by other filmmakers mm -hmm. and yeah. we don't necessarily talk about it sometimes we do you know yeah yeah um so let's move on to my pick then i went with um one missed call which is a 2003 japanese horror film directed by the infamous takeshi miike um so this centers around kind of a curse that is going through telephones basically so a person when they get this really strange ringtone and they pick it up they can hear themselves die and it also will give you like the time and date of their death so it centers on um yumi this girl uh her friend was affected by the curse and she died and she's trying to investigate where this comes from especially because one of her other friends is now going through it and then eventually she is affected by it as well so she's joined by another victim's older brother and together they try and discover how to end this curse um so what did you think of one mystical uh so i i love japanese horror films um mm. they boy they love working with curses don't they, oh, they like, do. where they love like, curse. yeah there, there's a lot which i i believe is a cultural thing Mm -hmm. I love it. I wish we worked a little bit more with curses sort of um, in American horror genre films, but yep. 
I find it interesting. I, I am a person who is very subtitles. I love subtitles. Um, they're, they're my friend. It's, it is terrifying, honestly. Yeah. And I believe this one was remade for America. Uh, yeah. So I think there was one missed call from 2008. That's like an American remake because we love yeah. to take all the great Japanese and Korean horror films and then remake them for American audiences yeah. because American audiences generally don't like subtitles for some guy yeah. reason. And it, it, it starred, um, Oh God, what's her name? She was quite, she was really big in like the nineties and early two thousands. Um, Shannon Sossaman. Yes. Do you remember her? Yeah. She was like 2000 staple. Yeah. Um, and, and apparently it was like one of the worst panned films of the year. Like people hated it. <laughs> yeah, I I watched it. So I hadn't seen, you know, this original Japanese version since. Mm-hmm. I had watched the One Miss Call um, 2008 version when it came out. It was horrible. And I honestly, as a filmmaker, I'm like, why do we keep remaking these amazing foreign horror genre films? Um, and we make them worse. Like we don't, I don't think that there's a single foreign language remake that has done and been done in America that I have liked better. And and that goes across all genres. I mean, what are we doing? I, I don't know. Like, I don't know why we do this. Uh, you know, it's studios. I'm like, look, I have original horror scripts if you want to like put something new out there, but no, let's remake and ruin, you know, this, this sort of amazing genre film. So when I watched this original uh, Japanese version, I was kind of going in with the 2008 remake. Right. So it's yeah. like, kind of having that knowledge and I was like oh man this is so much better this is more terrifying it it just the pacing was incredible in it the just I mean I would love to look at the script honestly because it just it was terrifying and they they brought that fear in a way that I think the remake just lost they just yeah they missed it um and this is why we should just stop remaking <laughs> foreign genre horror films or just foreign films yeah. in general. We, we, we really should stop. Yeah. I really, I mean, it's been said about one miss call that it's pretty much a, almost a parody of the, the Japanese horror. Yeah. Um, but like, I, I, I'm a fan of Japanese horror and I, I actually didn't mind it. Like, yes, there are moments where it gets really cheesy and you're like, Oh, and the bit where they're in the old hospital and they find out that the door is locked and then this like face comes through the door and you're just a bit like, oh, that's cheesy. But I I think before that, when they're doing quite the like the lo-fi stuff where it's all kind of on the phone, one of the characters, instead of getting a phone call, she gets a picture, like super old school flip phone picture. But it's really creepy. Like you can just see the arm and like this weird face and it's really effective. And the fact that, you know, earlier when we were talking about old caller ID and all this, mm-hmm. but the fact that they can see their own number come up, call them. Yeah. And like, of course you'd pick up through sheer curiosity. Of course. Um, and I just think it's a really terrifying thing. Like this human curiosity is almost what kills them basically. Yeah. So note to everybody, don't be curious. No. Yeah. <laughs> no in, in doing anything if you're uh, not a little bit curious in life. But yeah, yeah I mean, it, it can get you in trouble. <laughs> so what did you think about the underlying story? So we like most Japanese horror, it, it centers around a mother and a child. Um, so what did you think about that underlying story? Because originally we think it's a, an abusive mother and it turns out to not be. It's actually a killer child. 
um, horrifying because I am a mother. Um, you know, <laughs> I think that brings a different, you know, if you're a parent, it, it brings a different level to certain films. This would be one of those films where you're like, oh, shit, now I have to worry about, yeah. like, my kids killing me. Like, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I've got enough things to worry about. Um, yeah. I found it to be an interesting relationship again you know like we thought one thing as the audience and so that Mm -hmm. is a great mark of a great screenwriter a great director because they you know they they made us feel a certain way we we thought like oh we know what's happening right we we all thought oh oh, this is terrible and then it's like oh yeah no you didn't and then you get the reveal and it's like it's a really great reveal and i think for me that's what i love the most about horror genre films is those great reveals of like oh shit i thought i knew what was happening especially those of us who watch the genre a lot right it's hard for us to get surprised because you know we there there there's certain formulas in the genre just like with any genre and sometimes films can become too formula um formulamatic, uh, I don't know, words. Formulaic. Um, Formulaic, thank you. Um, And and so anytime I can be surprised with something like that of where I'm like, oh man, I had it wrong. Like I'm always super impressed with a film when it it does that to me because it's like, oh man. And then it subverts your expectations of everything else. Mm. It's like, oh, well, if I had this wrong, then, you know, then you start doubting yourself, which is great. Like you want your audience to doubt themselves or doubt what they think they know, because then that leads to that sort of anxiety and fear of like the whole film, you know? So it's all about creating these sort of doubts and anxiety and fear in your audience. And I think that the filmmakers did a really good job with this. Yeah. I I like the way we're given a false ending almost. Um, So they discover the mother's body in the hospital and they think, ah, that's it. You know, the main character, Yumi has a bit of a moment, kind of that represents her own traumatic relationship with her mother and it's all like ah and then um I I really liked it because I mean being a mother myself as well as someone who has gone through really bad mental health issues I appreciate it say like with stuff like Hereditary and the Babadook Mm -hmm. where they explore parental mental health issues but a lot of the time I feel like mothers with mental health issues are scapegoats in horror films yeah they're made to be like the real baddies and like look at this terrible mother with her terrible mental illness and she's terrible um so i thought it was going down that road and i was like ah here not again but like you said when you find out and you find out it's the child all along and that this poor mother had to decide between her two daughters basically um you know was i gonna let my older daughter kill my younger daughter or I have to let my older daughter die from an asthma attack, basically. I mean, which is a really horrific scene. Um, and I just, I just love the way it subverted that trope. Um, the only thing was, I felt it was a little bit disconnected between, like, I could understand almost the mother being the one calling, but I felt it was a bit disconnected between the child turning out to be the ghost in the phone. But I can get past that. Yeah, yeah. I mean there should have been a little bit more connection there for us as yeah. audience, but I think because they did everything else so well that we're willing to forgive it. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, again, as a parent, like think about making that choice between yeah. your children. I have like four kids. So yeah. like if I had to choose, 
you know, and, and I actually came up, like I had that choice at one point in time. Um, I was pregnant with identical twins and they had this condition called twin to twin transfusion syndrome. So one of them was dying. Yeah. And the, you know, the doctors gave me that choice of like, well, you know, you're about halfway through your pregnancy. So you can either let one go and give the other one a better chance, or Mm -hmm. you can just keep going on with both, uh, children and you might lose both of them. Uh, yeah. you know, it, it, it was a terrifying choice to yeah, make. And, and so I you had to go through that. Yeah. Um, fortunately I, I was like, no, you know, we're far enough along. Hopefully if they have to be born early, they'll be in a NICU. Yeah. You know, I was at least close enough to hospital services where I, I felt like, okay, if anything goes wrong, like I can get to the hospital pretty fast. They had yeah. neonatal services, but you know, that choice as a parent of like, do you, you know, do you, how can you choose? Like, how yeah. can you choose between your kids? You, I couldn't. Like, I, I would yeah. never, you know, obviously I couldn't. My kids are fine. They're almost 18. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, they survived and, and I made the right choice, right? But yeah. you don't know if you're making the right choice. Mm-hmm. You know, everything we do as parents to our kids, we hope we're making the right choices. We hope we're doing yeah. the right things for them. Um, but we don't. And then so that really kind of plays on, you know, the really tough, choices that we do have to make as parents, even if we don't have Mm -hmm. to decide obviously between life, literal life and death between our kids. Sometimes we do have to make choices. Am I going to go to this child's recital while the other one has a soccer game? Right. And even if it feels like, oh, those are smaller choices Mm -hmm. as a parent, you're still thinking, but like, yeah, am I going to mess one of my kids up? Right. Like is is one kid going to feel like I don't like them as much or, you know, so there, there's all these anxieties, um, being a parent, whether you're, you know, mom or dad or whatever, of where you're, you're just hoping you're doing the right thing, um, when yeah. you have to make these choices. And, and so that really kind of plays to the mother in this film. She was hoping mm-hmm. she did the right thing. Like both choices yeah. were awful, awful, yeah. awful choices. Um, she made a choice that, because she had to, and, you know, we're left as parents going like, I get it. Like, yeah, like what a horrible choice. Like there was no good choices here. And, and yeah. like, we can kind of feel that, um, that pain in a way. So mm-hmm. that does help connect us to the mother in, in just like, oh yeah, I recognize this. Yeah. And, and this is horrible. Yeah. Um, it's, it's so weird because we've got these two mothers basically in this film. We've got Yumi's mother who is an abusive, terribly abusive mother. And then we've got this mother who yes causes the death of her child but has to do it to save her other child um so this exploration of motherhood is really interesting in this film which is something i'm really interested in as a mother myself um so what did you think of now the the final scene is a little bit weird the final act is a little bit like did they need to do that um but what what were your thoughts on it so i just watched it last night i still don't know how i feel about it Um, if that makes sense. It's definitely, oh man, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely a part of me that's trying to make sure that I'm reframing my viewing of it in the fact that it's a foreign genre film, right? And and things are done differently. You know, if you watch a lot of Korean horror or a lot of Japanese horror, like it's just, it's different because there's cultural differences. Um, I I think I'm going to need to sit on that ending, like even more because I do like weird shit. I, yeah. I'm going to be honest, like, I, I love weird shit. I love strange shit. Um, but sometimes I don't know. Yeah. 
<laughs> it was so funny because I was I was watching it on Shudder, and afterwards I was looking at the the Shudder comments underneath mm-hmm. the film, and so many of them were just like, "Am I stupid? Because I didn't get that ending. I had to go like Wikipedia this." Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just so funny. I was like, "Thank God I'm not the only one." Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like you said, it's. I think it's a cultural thing. Yeah. Um, and I kind of like films that you're. It sits with you, and you're like, "Did mm-hmm. I get that? <laughs> Did I understand that?" <laughs> Absolutely. Like, you know, I, I think there's something to be said of, you know, I think film in general, um, you know, should make us feel sometimes but sometimes it should make us think and and question things so any time where I'm like man did I you know I was kind of feeling at the end I was like did I miss something did I fall asleep during part of this movie and like like what happened did I miss like 10 15 20 minutes of the film I don't know (laughs) you know and and I I was left with that and it was definitely um when I finished watching I was like man I'm gonna have to rewatch this yeah because I still feel like I'm not really sure what happened there at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so would you recommend One Missed Call to horror fans? I would. Um, but again, I, I'm super into foreign horror genre films because they're different from what we get yeah. over here in the U.S., right? Um, and there's still some strange resistance to it, especially for American audiences. Like, again, I, I don't know why people don't like reading on screen or whatever. Um, I, I was hoping, you know, when uh, Squid Game came out you know and was like yeah. this huge you know um thing on netflix was it last year i, I don't know the years have gone it was last year, over, yeah last yeah. year the years kind of melt together but when it came <laughs> out on netflix you know of course we watched it and everything and i was like oh this is really good i hope american audiences will get over their fear mm-hmm. of like foreign language films and obviously you know huge global hit like did yeah. did great we're getting a second season everything like that so there's a part of me that hopes um, when things like this happen uh, with like Squid Game that more American audiences will realize like, oh, hey, there's some really good stuff that we're missing out on yeah. because we're unwilling to read subtitles or we're unwilling to, um, you know, kind of watch these things. And there's, you know, even with Squid Game, I mean, there's a lot of cultural things, right? That yeah. maybe, you know, as American audiences or, you know, whatever that we didn't necessarily pick up on. But it didn't make the series less fun. It didn't make anything less um, amazing, you know. So Mm -hmm. I always love to encourage people to sort of watch the foreign genre horror films, especially if you have watched an American remake of it, right? So I think a lot of our audience maybe has watched the American remake um, because I think there's, there's an American remake, right, of this one too? Because I feel like there is. I was like, there's always an American remake, right? (laughs) and, and so if you've seen the American remake, I think, you know, do what I did. And then you watch this one and you're like, oh, wow, that's different. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's almost a different, completely different tone. Um, it feels yeah. more menacing to me. The Japanese mm-hmm. one does. And I love menacing. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I would definitely, I would recommend it over the original mm-hmm. film that I chose. Um <laughs> Yeah, I don't, and as well, I think One Miss Call is actually a really good gateway film into Japanese horror mm-hmm. because, I mean, despite the ending, it is a lot easier to digest as compared to like the original Ring or Ju uh, on Grudge. It's a bit, mm-hmm. it's it's narration and its story is a little bit more easier to digest than those would be. So it's a really good kind of introduction 
as you said to like the Japanese horror culture, um, to Japanese culture in, in general, um, and it's it's film traditions. Um, so I definitely think it's a really good gateway drug into J-horror. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it is probably easier for somebody to go into that versus the original ring, um, yeah. you know, and, and it does kind of really set up this whole Japanese um, horror genre with, again, the, the curses. Like you see yeah. so much of the curses in like pretty much all these films. Um, and it's it's amazing because even though we don't, we're in a different culture, right? We still mm-hmm. can understand what a curse is and we can still yeah. kind of reach back into, you know, sort of the past and like really kind of understand like, oh, curses, mm-hmm. um, even though it's a much bigger part of Japanese culture than it is our culture. Um, yeah. it's, it's still something that's very translatable against, mm-hmm. you know, across languages, across cultures. I think pretty much every culture in the world has some sort of, you know, curse legend yeah. or, or, you know, some of that in their, their history or their social history yeah. and stuff. So I think it's accessible for all yeah. audiences. Yeah. So out of the two films, which one would you recommend over the other? If you had to, you know, if someone was like, I want to watch, <laughs> why would they be? But if they were like, I want to watch something with telephones, <laughs> uh, which, which one would you recommend over the other? Um, definitely one missed call. Um, yeah, it's just, I, it just feels better. I I don't know if that makes sense, but it's just, it feels like a more, even though I still don't know how I feel about the ending, Mm -hmm. but it just, it, it feels better. Yeah. Also, I think despite the fact that the technology, like the phones are very Mm -hmm. off the time, it could still, it's very relevant to now. Like you could still have it now. Mm-hmm. And it would still make sense. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah, not that that takes away from like the classic horror movies that have old technology, but I just think it holds up a little bit better. Yeah, it, it feels more relevant to yeah. how we live today, right? And and those types of things can obviously still happen, right? Very, yeah. very real. Uh, we live in a time with, yeah, we have caller ID, but we also have spoofing. So people, yeah. you know, spoof, you can have any number you want, you know, spoofed mm-hmm. across the screen, all this other stuff. So, you know... It it's just yeah the technology is a little more advanced right now but that actually makes it scarier yeah yeah um so thank you so much for coming on and chatting about telephones with me <laughs> <laughs> um but before we go I always ask my uh, guests what is your favorite horror film um the original Night of the Living Dead I've written okay. s- several academic papers on it and right. then um. Right after George Romero died mm-hmm. uh, at the PBS station that I, I host Saturday Night Cinema for, we actually got his, the documentary on him. And we did a oh, night yeah. where we uh, featured the documentary as well as Night of the Living Dead. And I dressed up in all black and white makeup, like black and white <laughs> wig and everything. So I hosted yeah. it as like a classic black and white character. And um, it's just that film there's so much historical value to it. Mm-hmm. Um, everything from having a black lead to uh, it's the reason why we don't have to put copyrights on film credits anymore. Yes, yeah. um, you know, the p- whole public domain thing. So, um, and of course it really created this sort of new subgenre of zombie films because mm-hmm. until that point in time, most of our zombie films were more like voodoo based zombies yeah. um, and less of this like, you know, sort of yeah. living dead. And, and you see the influence obviously everywhere i mean i think any zombie film or show that has come since night of the living dead all i mean every one of those filmmakers 
generally cites that as like an inspiration, right? It, it was yeah. the film. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because I've had a lot of people say Dawn of the Dead is their favorite mm. uh, horror film. And while yes, I appreciate it, I, I just have this really special place in my heart for Night of the Living Dead. Like, I don't know why, I just, it's just something that's so like endearing to me almost. I think, like you said, because of its historical importance, mm-hmm. um, George Amor basically created that living dead, revived dead yeah. genre. And without that, we wouldn't have stuff like The Walking Dead or, or even 28 Days Later mm-hmm. or, you know, any of these kind of the, the whole zombie genre at all. Um, and yeah, I just love it. So thank you for saying that. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I think as a filmmaker too, like they did this on like almost no money. It was a bunch yeah. of friends, you know, it, there was different makeup pretty much every day. Thank God they shot yeah. it in black and white. But, you know, so there, there's just this yeah. as a filmmaker too. There's this feeling of like, oh, that could have been me. I could do that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on. And if people would like to find you on social media, where can they? Um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter for now um, at Pale Alaska. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. I don't know. Twitter's a dumpster fire right now, so we'll see. But I will always be... Um, Uh, My handle is just like Pale Alaskan, so find me there. So that was my chat there with Michaela Daniels about uh, the use of telephones in horror. And we chatted about 1979's When a Stranger Calls. And we also talked about 2003's One Missed Call. So what did you think about this week's episode? Did you enjoy it? What is your favourite telephone-based horror? Um, Let us know on Twitter at what underscore scream or there is also facebook and letterboxd and instagram as well you can find us on there um next week the next week's episode is another literature one with um our literature i can't say i can never say that word literary 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 I think it's literary right okay with our literary expert Elaine Pascal and we're going to be just doing a, a general topic on gothic literature um so yes uh don't forget to rate review and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you are listening to me on and don't forget to stay horrific goodbye